I hope you're all at Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11, because that's the last time I'm going to say it. I have something to say right now that might be, it'll make some of your eyes roll, and it will encourage a lot of you. I love the Lord of the Rings. I do. It's so good. It's so amazing. And I'm, I, I was telling some people this morning, it doesn't really matter if you like the books or the movies because there's really just two types of people. There are people who love the books and people who haven't read them. Um, that's, that's all there is regarding the Lord of the Rings. And it's okay if you haven't read them. That's all right. You love the books. You just don't know it yet. <clears throat> What's so great about the Lord of the Rings is it is so immersive. And one of the most immersive parts of the Lord of the Rings is journeying along with Frodo. I think something that gets a little bit skipped in the movies is the amount of suffering that you as the audience are invited into with Frodo. He leaves his home, and he doesn't just go on this journey with a group. He's chased down by otherworldly beings that he did not know existed, the black riders, the ring rays. He suffers the fear of being trapped by the rays. And eventually he is. He's stabbed by that morgul, evil, cursed blade, and he almost goes down for the count until he safely arrives at Rivendell. By the way of an elf. We journey on and he's gathered apart with a fellowship that quickly, quickly after maybe one small adventure disbands. It disbands because the great Gandalf falls. They have to go separate ways and Frodo suffers through it all. He continues to suffer as he has to trust an untrustworthy guide in Golem. He suffers what he believes is a betrayal of Samwise Gamgee, who ate all the bread, but he didn't. He suffers his water skin running dry, and he suffers the evil eye of Sauron on him. Like Frodo, the church of Smyrna was told they were about to suffer. And they did. Historically, they did. Like Smyrna, the word of God tells us this morning that we are about to suffer. There are spiritual realities in our text this morning that some of us may be uncomfortable with. Maybe it's something that we haven't thought of. Maybe it's something we don't even have a concept for. The reality of Satan, the devil, or even the reality of hell itself. This morning, the main idea that I want you to come away with is that the spiritual reality of suffering provides the people of God with faithful perseverance. I'll say that again. The spiritual reality of suffering provides the people of God with faithful perseverance. And just like Frodo, who had a great ally, we have a greater ally. 
We have the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like Frodo, he had an adversary. We have an adversary. And just like Frodo had a call to action, we have action that we are called to do. I'm going to pray for us this morning, and after I pray, we'll read the text together. Well, I'll read it. You don't have to read it out loud. Let us pray. Father, you love us. Pour out wisdom on us now so that we may feel your love, we may know your love, and we may not fear that we may be faithful. Oh, Jesus Christ, be magnified. For you are the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. We glorify you now, Lord Jesus. Spirit, speak to our hearts and stir us together to rejoice greatly, to be of joy, and to be faithful so that we may receive the crown of life. May we hear what you say to the churches, O Spirit. Speak to your people. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen. Starting in verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty. You are rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. We do thank you. Thank you for this. Like I said, we are seeing the spiritual reality of suffering provides the people of God with faithful perseverance. And we're going to notice three A words, right? Ally, adversary, and action. We have an ally, and I, and, and I want you to know right now that I'm going to spend a lot of time there probably, and I, rightfully we should. Here at Emmaus, we, we say that we exist to declare and display the gospel of Jesus. So we're going to spend a lot of time making much of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. The second is our adversary. We're going to talk of the spiritual reality of Satan. And last, we will see our action in our spiritual First, our ally. It says these are the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Now, you may be wondering, is this Jesus Christ? And yet, the second phrase, who died and came to life, brings it all to bear for us. He is the one who did this. And in fact, what you'll notice is any of these addresses to the churches, they all link back to chapter 1. Last week, it was, I am the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who, hold, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and we see that. He is the one in one twelve. 
We see for our address the words of the first and last who died and came to life. We just look to the other side of the page, Revelation 1, 17 and 18. When I, John, saw him, Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. This is the one, the first and the last. In other words, he is truly God. This declaration of I am the first and the last is not that I am, I have a beginning or I have an end, but it is instead there is none before me and none after me. There is none greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. If we were to do uh, a taxonomy of power and the hierarchy of all that, he's at the very top. There is none greater. There is none above him. And as we think through ally and adversary, some of you in this room may be feeling or thinking, well, yeah, isn't there this struggle, this equal struggle between Jesus and the devil? There is not. For Satan is not the first and the last. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament had a very interesting way of saying this. In Moses' psalm, Psalm 90, verses 1 through 2, he gives a, a different phrase but means the same thing as first and the last. Psalm 90, 1 through 2 says this, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. From everlasting to everlasting. Our linear minds can conceptualize things only so much. As far as that way goes, and as far as that way goes, you are God. You are the first and the last. Revelation says it over and over and over again. He even uses the terms the Alpha and the Omega in chapter 1 and again in chapter 22. Some of you in here may have a hard time with the divinity of Jesus. Some of you have a hard time with the humanity of Jesus. But here in these in this title, the first and the last, who died and came to life, we see the beauty of the one Christ. There are not two Christ. There's not the, the divine Jesus and the human Jesus. There is one. There is one Son of God. He is truly God. And he is also truly man. He is the one who died and came to life. This is the good news of the gospel. I, I don't know if, if you are here because someone invited you. We have something where we're, we're trying to invite people here to Emmaus now. They're a share and invite initiative. And maybe you're in the room right now because someone invited you here. And maybe you don't know 
what I'm talking about. Maybe you, you, you would consider yourself way, way far away from God. And you may have a concept of Christians that they believe some kooky stuff. And if you were to say that we believe kooky stuff, may it only be this, that we believe that the one who is the first and the last took on flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life, and died a death that we deserve to die. Giving us life because he rose again from the dead. He came to life. If you were to say that we believe anything that's kooky, may it be true of us. <laughs> may it be the gospel. I think the kookiest thing about that is that we want you to believe it. We want you to know this, Jesus. Maybe you're in the room and you're weary. Maybe the past week was hard. The past month was hard. The past year was hard. And you struggle with crying your eyes open in the morning. Our text here tells us that we have a great ally. And when I say ally, I don't mean that he is just a mere helper, a co-equal with you. No, he's taken it all on on your behalf, which is why we say he is the one who died and came to life. For if we die, we don't come to life without him. He is truly man. Some of you in here may be walking well. You may be walking very well. It's been a great week. It's been a great month. It's been a great year. You're coming out of weariness, and you feel strong. And I want to encourage you this morning with something that might not sound so encouraging. It's the start of verse 10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer, because you are about to suffer. That is this life. This life, until we get to our home, is a suffering. But the good thing about that is not only is he true God and true man, but because he's true man, listen to the first words of verse 9. The first two words. This is what Jesus says to the church of Smyrna. I know. I know, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, I know the slander against you. And he does know. He knows you who are weary. What it feels like in the desert. He knows you who are walking well, that you walk well by faith. In fact, he knows so well that we see that in Hebrews chapter 4, he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. You might be asking, who is it? He answers, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So when he says, I know your tribulation, when he says, I know your poverty, when he says, I know your slander, he knows your temptation. He knows your temptation right now to think about, uh, Sean's talking about somebody else. He knows your temptation late at night to look at pornography. He knows your temptation when gathered together to gossip of others. He knows your temptation to slander someone else to make your own self look better. He knows your temptation to give up integrity and to seek financial gain by immoral ways. He knows your temptation. And yet some of us, dare I say all of us, in our hearts have fallen to that temptation. And yet Jesus, our great high priest, has not. He is without sin. So what does he tell us to do? Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace where Christ is seated that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And to the church of Smyrna, a time of need is coming. And to us, Emmaus, a time of need is coming. It doesn't matter if you are strong right now. If you feel spiritually sick or you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ at all, the same answer is for all. Seek the throne of grace. Seek him who gives you mercy and grace. Cling to Christ because he knows your tribulation and he's done something about it. Notice, I don't know if your Bible does it this way, but mine does. There's parentheses right after poverty. It says, but you are rich. Well, how can you know on my poverty, but then claim that I'm rich, Jesus? I tell you, the riches that he's speaking of are not in your bank account. It's not how big your house is. It's not the car you drive. It's not the stocks you have. It's the inheritance that Pastor Tyler assured us of during our assurance of pardon. Great riches come with Christ. Eternal blessing. We are inheritors of God's kingdom. And it's by none, nothing that you have done. You are rich only on the account of the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. So the suffering that we know is actually, it's actually something that we can keep going with. I think there's, there's a way that we see that in the slander. For when he's talking about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan, there's much of our biblical data that kind of helps us with that. But before we talk about that, I think there's, a, there's something to say here. Many of us see this and say slander against us, but we must immediately pause and reflect how have we slandered others? How has our mouth been used as a weapon against one another? 
Or even those that maybe, maybe when you got your share and invite card and you wrote a name on there, maybe you've slandered even that name. We are prayerfully trying to care for and share the good news of Jesus and invite them to church with us. What's beautiful about that is the Lord forgives. There's a way that we can use our mouth for greatness, not for slander. If we look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, I think this helps us a little bit with what's happening here in this slander of the Jews who are not actually Jews, but are a synagogue of Satan. What is Jesus talking about? If we look at Matthew 5, 11, this is what it says. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. On Christ's account, for he's the one who's preaching the Sermon on the Mount here. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evils against you falsely on my account. For the Jews were to know that Jesus was the one. The Jews were, had the concepts of a Messiah on their way. And yet, if anyone here claims to be a Jew and they're not, they're actually following the synagogue of Satan. After that last bit in 5.11 of Matthew, Matthew 5.12 says this and gives us a concept of why we can be blessed when others revile us and persecute us on Jesus' account. He says, rejoice and be glad. Which is really hard to do when people slander you. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He goes back to speaking of the riches. This is coinciding. You are rich. Your reward is not here. Your reward is in heaven. And Jesus knew this, for he was from heaven. John 8, we see that Jesus speaks directly to Jews in this fashion. John 8, 42 says this. This is after the, G, the Jews are not believing that Jesus is telling the truth of who he is. It's telling the truth of the gospel. Jesus said to them, if, you, if God were your father, which they previously claimed, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And here we see the link to our text. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. We read in the book of Acts constantly that Jews were, were stirring up trouble for anybody's missionary journey to a new town. They were constantly against the message of Jesus. And here, Jesus is warning Smyrna and Jesus is warning us, not necessarily of specifically Jews, but those who are against Christ. 
Jesus knows the slander of those who are against him. He even warned the disciples of this in John 15. He said, if the world hates you, remember, hated me first. This life is a life of suffering. Now we turn to our adversary and we see that the life is a life of suffering. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Now I'm gonna be real honest. I get real tripped up with numbers and I work at a warehouse where I have to count product all day. So it goes slowly. And I get tripped up with numbers in a very uh, figurative book like Revelation. So these 10 days, I tried to do my best research on it. And I'm going to not give you options because there's too many to give you. I believe the best account of telling us what these 10 days mean is this. When we look at the number 10 elsewhere in the Bible, my mind immediately goes to Exodus. There are 10 plagues against Egypt. And there are 10 commandments given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And what happens in each of those instances? There is a divine fullness. There is a limit that God gives to these things. You want a limit to to Pharaoh saying that the people of God may finally leave their slavery? It comes at the number 10. You want a limit for the summary of the law? It comes at the number 10. And so there is a divine ordering, a divine limitation that comes with the number 10. So when we read, and for 10 days you will have tribulation, I believe that is the divine ordering of the number of days of your life. No, it's not a literal 10 days, but it is that every single one of your days is ordained by God above. So your 10 days may not look like my 10 days. Unless we say that he gives and he takes away. It is all from his hand. So even here, as we turn our gaze on our adversary, we even see that the, he is the first and the last still. Everything that Satan does can never outdo God, can never outdo the Lord Jesus Christ. He has power to imprison, but no more. It's as if what Pastor Patrick preached a few weeks ago, what the brothers of Joseph meant for evil, God meant for good. So what Satan means for evil, our God can mean for good. Even this imprisonment, even this tribulation, even our suffering. What he means for evil, God means for good. I don't know that you would disagree that the best Old Testament example of this is from the book of Job. The courts of heaven were called forth and Satan was amongst it. Job 1.7 says this, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? 
a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job really fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. He's got a lot of stuff. Of course he praises you. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, game on. Behold, all that he has in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and he killed his children. He killed Job's children. He took away all of his riches. And you're thinking to yourself, what happens if I'm in that situation? We put ourselves in Job's shoes, and things get a little fearful. and They get a little shaky. And we need Job to be our guide. So we read on to verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head because he's in mourning. And he fell to the ground. He worshipped. You're wondering, what is he worshipping? Who is he worshipping? He's in mourning and yet he worships. What's happening? And then he says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. He's saying all true things. And the tension is building for us to read the very next line. Will he or won't he curse God to his face? He still knows that the Lord gave all the things. And now he knows that the Lord has taken them all away. Even through the works of Satan. And what does Job say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. He says in all this Job did not sin. Or charge God with wrong. If you continue to read, you see that there is a miniature synagogue of Satan with whom Job thinks there are three friends who are actually teaching him otherwise that God is against him. And it's not true. For God does show up and he tells Job who he is. What Satan may mean for evil for Job, God meant for good. The same is true for you. We read in Hebrews 12 a way that this is seen. In Hebrews 12, verse 3, we are told this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. If you're confused, that him there is Jesus. He is one who endured such hostility against himself. Why? So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then it says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Because it's supposed to draw your mind back to Jesus did resist sin, even to the point of shedding his perfect, holy blood. It says, and have you forgotten? The exhortation that addresses you as sons from Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He goes on. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, 
We've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. So we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good. That we may share in his holiness. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. You may be in the room and you're saying, but I'm not a son. I'm not one who, who would say, I believe in the Lord Jesus. What does that mean for me? Our encouragement from the text says this. Our encouragement for believers at the end of verse 11 says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. There is a second death. There is the reality of hell. And in Revelation 21, there's encouragement for the believer and a firm reality for the non-believer. Revelation 21, 5 through 8 says this, And he who was seated on the throne said, that's Jesus, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I hope you're hearing the first and the last. He says, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faith, faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, immoral sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Friends, the invitation isn't for you to leave discouraged. The invitation is for you to trust Jesus. Not to fear the effects of your sin, but to love the effects of Christ's obedience. Don't necessarily scare your way out of hell, but embrace the love of Christ that welcomes you into his family. That you are a son. You are one who conquers only because Jesus the Christ is one who is conquered. That's the only way we get to conquer. Because he said it is done. Because he said it is finished. Because he's the one who died and came to life. There is victory in Jesus. Not victory in yourself. Trust in Christ. Trust in him. And now... We move to our action, and these are our pastoral charges this morning. They're straight commands from the text. Verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. But as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Remember the parentheses, you are rich in Christ, Christian. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. And Emmaus, you are about to suffer. Let us remember that this isn't just written to individuals. This is written to the churches. 
to groups, to bodies of believers. This isn't something for us to only seat in our personal life. This is for us to seat as we look at one another and as we watch each other go through communion. As we confess with one another in our community groups. As we encourage and care for one another. As we see each other out in the city. Do not fear what you're about to suffer, but know you are rich. You are rich in the inheritance of Christ. To non-believers in the room. Listen to Matthew 10, 28, when it says, do not fear. Matthew 10, 28 says this instead. says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who destroy body, soul, body and soul in hell. And this fear that we speak of is not solely trembling, terrified fright, but it is rightfully ordering him as the top of all of hierarchies, at the, at the number one in all the lists. In our home, we watch a lot of uh, National Geographic documentaries about animals. I don't know if you guys do that. It's not by my choice, but it's better than some of the cartoons and stuff. Because honestly, if you have a boy, and maybe girls do this as well, but they are all about predators. And of course, they don't want to be mid-class predators like a fox. They want to know about the apex predators. The lions, the tigers, the orcas. My goodness. Everybody, like... I don't know what SeaWorld's doing, but they're doing, they're doing wrong messing with those, those things. They're terrifying. They honestly are terrifying. I mean, their nickname is Killer Whale, and we're cool with that, just because they're black and white and look like penguins. Um, no, thank you. In the same way that we talk about apex predators, we have to realize of all of the things, of all of the ones, of all of the beings, of all of everyone, there is one who is above it all, who is greater than all. That on the list, there's number one, and then there's too many numbers to count for the next person, or next thing, next greatest being. He is that far above. He is that much more. For he is the first and the last. That is the fear that we are to have. A fear is a right ordering of who he is. And the fear of God, as Proverbs said, is the beginning of wisdom. And so I pray that you would begin today to fear God so that you would have the beginning of wisdom to trust in Jesus Christ, to trust in Jesus as your Savior. Number two action, pastoral charge is this, be faithful. It says this, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. There's hesitancy sometimes when we say that. For we think of the horrific and crude stories that we've heard of martyrs who were faithful unto death. But I want to encourage you Christians today. Emmaus, every Christian death is a martyrdom. Be faithful unto death. Every Christian death is a martyrdom of the flesh, the world, and the devil. So be faithful unto it. And you have the crown of life. 
not a crown of, of your own fitting, but it doesn't, it doesn't fit you. For this life that has been given to you is only given by the one who is the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. It is his crown, and he gives it to you. And this is why we talk about inheritance. This is why we talk about adoption and saying, you now have access to the refrigerator of heaven. My kids can open up the fridge at any time they want, and often it's the two-year-old spilling yogurt everywhere. But you have access in the refrigerator of heaven. You have no fear to go there. You don't have to ask permission to use the restroom. You're a child with an inheritance. You will be given the crown of life. As we prepare for communion this morning, I want to remind you of the Lord of the Rings. Sorry, I have. Because I'm reminded of the bread, right? The elven bread that they get. And it's just a crumb will satisfy their hunger. Which is remarkable. If I could get some of that bread, it would be amazing. If I could just eat a crumb a day, I think I would do it. However, inherently in the journey for Sam and Frodo, there is a bigger problem. They only have so much bread that even the crumbs will soon inevitably run out. Even though it satisfies, it's going to run out. This morning as we see the first and the last who died and came to life, and as we come and we take of this the bread of life, of this the cup of the new covenant, we have joy to know that it never runs out. Christ's love for you never runs out. And as we take this meal, this holy meal, as we spiritually commune with God, we know that it's always there for us. It will never run out. That we take the bread that is his body broken for us. We take the cup, which is the blood of the new covenant, The gospel of Jesus that he died on our behalf transforms us. God adopts us into his family. That we are made holy as he is holy. We're not like Frodo and Sam. Our bread doesn't run out. Our water skins don't run dry. We have the eternal one. Let's pray. We worship you, the first and the last, the one who died and came to life. May we, may we not fear what we are about to suffer. May we be faithful unto death. You are our crown of life. Give us faith to trust you, O Lord. It is in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.